Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered surely have nothing whatever against Negroes. That's really not the question. Really encountered apathy and ignorance. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In America, I was free only in battle, but never free to rest. We need to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. They needed us to speak to Cotton, and now they don't need us anymore. Now they don't need us, they're going to kill us all off. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. That voice you just heard was writer James Baldwin. He was born in Harlem in 1924, but he spent most of his life in France. There he wrote observations of race relations in America, of the brutality of systemic racism, and of the future of the Western world. He was feared by organizations like the FBI who collected more than 1,600 pages of intelligence on him. Filmmaker Raoul Peck's documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, is based on one of Baldwin's unfinished manuscripts. It traces his journey back to the United States as an observer of the civil rights movement. My dear Jay, you must, it is to be hoped, be as curious as I am concerning the execution of this book project. I know how to do it, technically. It is a matter of research and journeys, and with you, or without you, I will do it anyway. We hear about his meetings with Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Medgar Evers, and his emotions as one by one they were shot dead. We watch as he debates the luminaries of his age, and we bear witness to Baldwin's life in the same way he bared witness to the struggles of a country reckoning with just how broken it had become. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace, and to which you owe, your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. Joining me today to talk about James Baldwin, his life, and the documentary is Nam Kiwanuka, co-host extraordinaire of TVO's The Agenda. Stay with us. Nam Kiwanuka, welcome back to OnDocs. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me back. Well, you were here last time to talk about 13th, which is Ava DuVernay's documentary about the 13th Amendment and mass incarceration in the United States. But, you know, we, we wanted to have you back on because I think, I think when we were discussing that episode, you had talked about another documentary about James Baldwin mm-hmm. uh, called I Am Not Your Negro, which is a film by Raoul Peck. And, uh, yeah, we wanted to bring you on to talk about it. And I know you're really interested in James Baldwin, so um, maybe you could just tell us a bit about why you're so interested in James Baldwin. Uh, he, um, I, I discovered him just a few years ago, um, and I just connected to his writing. The way he writes on the page, he can also do that so effortlessly when he's doing interviews, like when he's doing... Um, <laughs> I remember, I think I sent you the debate he had with um, against William uh, F. Buckley, who's like yes. a, a very famous conservative uh, talk show host. 
And he just has a way of uh, simplifying complex um, things, <laughs> as I use mm-hmm. things. Uh, so I just, I, his writing is just so eloquent, but also so simple. It's sad. It's um, filled with love and a stubbornness to it. Um, and I just, mm. uh, I really connected to his writing. Yeah, I want to get back to. Actually, want to talk about that debate uh, a little later on. But you know, my, I, I kind of, I'm, I kind of like you. I'm a little uh, late to James Baldwin myself. You know, I saw this movie when it came out in theaters uh, about five years ago, I think, or four years ago. And uh, back when we could go to those, <laughs> yeah, like ended up four times. <laughs> yeah, but I hadn't really read any of his books. I'd, I'd seen that debate with Buckley uh, a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, but I, I decided to prepare for this interview. I I, w- I thought I would read one of his books. So I obviously I chose a short one because I have a short attention span. <laughs> Which one did but you read? I, I read uh, the Fire Next Time. Okay, I haven't even read that. Oh, it's 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 a short. It's a it's two essays. It's uh it's it's quite good. What what books have you of of his have you read? Um, I read Giovanni's Room and If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the yeah. one they turned into a movie. Yeah, If Beale Street Could Talk. Love stories. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm a sucker for those. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the fire next time. I know it's 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 actually uh it's two essays and one of them is written in the form of a letter to his nephew and it's sort of looking at the role of race in American history, which is obviously a theme that he comes back to a lot. But, you know, what it made me think of was um nehisi Coates' is right. Between the World and Me. And uh, I think there's, like, you know, f- fairly evident similarities between the two. And I think even Toni Morrison uh, anointed ja- um nehisi Coates as this generation's James Baldwin. I wonder what you made of that claim. I mean, if Toni Morrison said that I was a frog, I would say, yes, I am a frog. <laughs> but yes, of course, uh, I, I totally see the, uh, the connection. Um, but I also kind of feel as if they're being, their own identities are being erased um, mm. because they both have unique voices. I think maybe it's because of the subject matter that they're talking about. But it also uh, it points to what James Baldwin um was writing about so many decades ago that it's still something that's happening now. Um, And I wonder what James Baldwin would make of that. And, um, you know, I I hope one day someone doesn't say that my son is his generation's Ta-Nehisi Coates, because at the heart of those, both of those men, they're talking about um, living in a country that refuses to see them as human beings. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad that Coates is sort of commenting on on the same problems that I guess Baldwin was commenting on uh, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, when I actually discovered Coates, you know, well before he became famous. Like, I mean, I was reading a, an essay that he wrote about the X-Men and right. how the X-Men <laughs> dealt with uh, race back in the 60s. You know, Malcolm X was kind of a an inspiration for Magneto and Martin Luther King was an inspiration for Professor X. You know, they had these two different yeah. philosophies about how to deal with uh, uh, their approaches to to humans, and uh, the movies that that had come out at that point really hadn't addressed any of that, and that was sort of Coates's. Uh, uh, he he had provided that analysis, and I saw, oh, that was really interesting. But you know, he's often asked about, you know, is he hopeful or optimistic about America? And I think Baldwin also uh, faced that question a lot. Yeah, um, I think watching this documentary too, he said, you know. Um, I choose to be a pessimist because it means that I'm alive or I mean he said it more eloquently Um, (laughs) because I I also like what choice do you have right like in the documentary I know we're going to talk more about it 
when he went back, um, he seemed to flourish in France. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't have to... Obviously, I'm sure he experienced racism in France. Maybe it was different because that wasn't his country, but to live in a country where your ancestors built that country and yet people don't see you as belonging to that place, that must create such a detachment where you're just kind of like floating through the wind. Um, And I think it speaks volumes that he was able to find his voice in France. Um, So... The fact that this stuff is still, we're still having these kind of conversations um, and witnesses a thread in that documentary, it just kind of feels that like at one point, does this stuff stop? Uh, at what point do, does what James, what, what James Baldwin was writing about all those uh, decades ago, um, maybe we can talk about something else because a, a part of James Baldwin's writing too was uh, about relationships. Um, It wasn't just the story of what it is to be black in a country that refuses you. Um, He was talking about, you know, love and uh, finding joy. And I think since last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, we've started to see people um, reclaim joy and say joy is an act of resistance because there is so much more beauty to life. And, you know, going through life like with within the documentary for James Baldwin to see three of his friends murdered how did that impact him you know like mm-hmm. each the first one then the second and the third um and i think when dr king died he, uh baldwin said something about how he didn't want to cry at the funeral and then it he said it was kind of like oh admitting to yourself that i'm afraid i did not want to weep for martin Tears seem futile, but I may also have been afraid, and I could not have been the only one, that if I began to weep, I would not be able to stop. I wish people, even as uh, astute as he was when it came to talking about like the, uh, I guess, I don't want to say race relations because that sounds like something off a menu. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but what was going what was going on in America back then and what is going on in America um, uh, now, he, he was a big, like he, there was more to his life. I definitely need to read more of his novels because I think um, I'd like to, I'd like to learn more about the things he, he said about relationships. Um, actually, we'll, I, I think we'll probably touch on it a little bit in later, later. Actually, but I want to I go back to the, to the film because, uh, you know, it came out in 2016, like I said. It was nominated for an Oscar. And uh, you mentioned, you know, his friends uh, who were killed, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers. This movie is really actually based on a manuscript that he was working on, and I think in the late 70s, that were, that were sort of reminiscences of these three men and uh, as well as his impressions of American history. And it was called Remember This House. No, it, was, it wasn't published, I don't think, but it was. Um, but the, the director, Raoul Peck, took uh, the pages of the, of, the, of the, I guess with the permission of the uh, Baldwin estate, and adapted it for this film. And, and he has uh, uh, the actor Samuel L. Jackson reading Baldwin's own words. And it's, you know, over, you know, footage of uh, the civil rights protests over... 
um, protests from Ferguson in 2014, you know, sort of weaving uh, between these these eras and also, you know, hearing from Baldwin himself and from Malcolm X and from Martin Luther King. And I guess, I, you know, I, I really like the film, but I, I guess I, I want to I know what your thoughts were on it. I thought it was really effective way to have his voice in um, in the documentary uh, and to serve as a guide because within the documentary, they also use, uh, I guess, <laughs> it's just like there's an image of uh, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like it was more recent, the documentary. Um, but th- those images, those pictures of those young boys uh, were used in the documentary over um, events that happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Um, I really liked it. Uh, it took, uh, I watched it then, and then I watched it again um, now to get ready for our conversation. But it took me a few days to watch it, if I'm honest. Hmm. Um, I think because of just how uh, how much of it resonates from what happened last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement. It was jarring to see um, the, uh, the dead bodies of all three, of Medgar Evans, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Um, you know, it's like, obviously we know that these people died, but I think when you'd see someone's body, it makes it final. It even makes it a bit more personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the people that he was talking about, um, all the people that he was connected um, to, all that genius just lost. Yeah. And the way all those video like the media clips the movies towards the end of the film he said that people say that he's bitter (laughs) and i think he says you know i am bitter you know um because it's like you're trying to prove to the people around you the people who are in power that we are suffering we are hurting and you don't need to be afraid of us i am a man i am not the n-word I am a man, I am a person, I am an individual. Um, And for him to try to kind of break down why it is that there is this narrative of the Negro problem, and I think that's what he says. Uh, It's like this character has been created um, to, I don't know, maybe justify why things are the way they are. Um, And towards the end of the film, there's images of bodies hanging from a tree. Um, and James Baldwin, you hear his voice saying, you know, you give me a terrifying advantage. You never had to look at me. I had to look at you. I know more about you than you know about me. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Hmm. And it speaks to what's happening right now. And he even says, history is not the past, it is the present. It's just, uh, so so much of what was happening all those years ago is still happening, but we still kind of put our heads in the sand like, oh, it's not happening. That group there is upset because of X, Y, Z, but it's not valid. You know, they just need to pull up their boots and work hard and they can attain that American dream. And right. it's not just a black and white thing. I think it's also something like I I take uh, ownership of it. I didn't know very much or any indigenous history. Uh, I came here to Canada as a refugee 
And I came, like my family came to this country for a reason. And I only learned about um, like the residential schools on Twitter from Connie Walker. And that was maybe five years ago, six years ago. And I think for a lot of us, when we put our heads in the sand and pretend that, oh, everything's good, then we don't have to um, question what we're doing to making it better for other people. Like what the role that we're playing in what's going on around us. And I think that's the power of this documentary. Um, I think, I hope that in 10, 15 years from now, maybe when people watch it, they won't say, oh, you know, this is so familiar. <laughs> maybe they'll say, <laughs> wow, you know, look at everything that's happened, look at everything that's changed. And I really do hope that more people, not just black people, and again, black people are not a monolith. Um, I hope more people read James Baldwin because he says it in the documentary where, you know, we should be, uh, we should have heroes. Uh, People should look towards, you know, Dr. King, a Malcolm X, or a James Baldwin, and that could be their hero. They don't have to be black. Do you know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. um, and more people find out about him and explore his work because the man was just, you know, he was way beyond before his time, or maybe he was uh, what that time needed. Well, I think he describes himself as as a as a witness. You know, like, and his responsibility is to sort of write the story and get it out, you know? I mean, he, and he, you know, he was obviously a writer. He was also, you know, he's an intellectual, you know, he's an amazing debater. And I, I kind of wondered about his, him as an activist though, because I think like, I don't know if I, do you put him in the same kind of category as a Martin Luther King or a Medgar Evers or even a Malcolm X, or do you think he's kind of, is he different from them? I don't think I could put him in that because he didn't. Because um, yeah. he, he said he didn't grow up the way that they grew up. He didn't grow up in the same way as Medgar Evans grew up in the South. Um, so that's a very different reality. And the same thing with Dr. King. In the documentary, he says that I'm not what they're doing. Uh, I'm not doing. I've lived a different life from what they've lived. Um, and what I thought was so interesting was how James Baldwin came to be. Um, I, I didn't even know uh, about his teacher uh mm -hmm. bill miller the a white woman who introduced baldwin to this life at 10 taking him to museums giving him books to read by this time i had been taken in hand by a young white school teacher named bill miller a beautiful woman very important to me she gave me books to read and talked to me about the books and about the world about ethiopia in Italy, and the German Third Reich. I was a child, of course, and therefore unsophisticated. I took Bill Miller as she was, or as she appeared to be to me. And I keep thinking back to if that teacher hadn't planted those seeds, you know, maybe James Baldwin wouldn't have been um, a witness. But I, I think he's a witness in the sense that he wrote about that time. He was there um, to speak in maybe in situations where 
Malcolm X, Dr. King, or Medgar Evans, the spaces that they weren't invited to. I noticed that uh, Baldwin was on a lot of talk shows. <laughs> it was yeah. kind of like, <laughs> I guess he was um, part of that. Uh, so going on the TV shows and um, maybe answering those questions in a different way, uh, because he was a writer, maybe they looked at him differently as opposed to someone who was an activist. I, I, yeah, I guess the talk shows were kind of the social media of their day. But it, it, it made me think, you know, like he's talking to these audiences, you know, in, in kind of a language I think that they understand, you know, like that's maybe not quote unquote threatening to them. I think Malcolm X, I mean, Malcolm X actually did those those talk shows as well. I, I, no, no. Um, do, you remember, do you remember that? Sorry, that talk show with Paul Weiss? Yes, actually, um, I want to get to that. I want to get yeah. to that. But before we do, I want to I want to bring up something else. But I do uh, hold that thought because there was something else that in the doc that, that they touch on, which was, um, you know, he he was a th- he was considered a threat by the by the FBI. Like there's a file yeah. on him. And I actually just want to read a part of it because I just think it's astounding. Information collected clearly depicted the subject as a dangerous individual who could be expected to commit acts inimical to the national defense and public safety to the United States in times of emergency. Like what? <laughs> what is he? Th- how, what is he a threat to? How is he a threat? This is it's insane to me. Yeah, I I think he was a threat because he was pushing back. Right? He was saying mm-hmm. this is the reality for black people, and people were listening to him. And um, uh, you know, when you said that uh, the witness part of it. When he was in France, he was having, you know, he was watching everything that was happening in the U.S. Um, and the civil rights movement. I don't know um, what, I don't know if I would have come back, um, but he says he wanted to go back because he wanted to pay his dues. And uh, there's a line in the film where he says, uh, the, where he says, the line that separates an actor from a witness is a very thin line indeed. Um, so, him being in those spaces, like on the talk show hosts, on having those friendships with those um, men who were respected in that movement, I think that the FBI got spooked by it. But I also think it was common practice for a lot of people to be on the FBI list, people that, uh, um, I, so I don't know if, but I do find it interesting that um, he was on there. But again, think about it now. Uh, people who, what is it, the pen is mightier than the sword kind of thing. Um, His books were selling, people were listening to what he was saying, and he was able to break down complex um, situations into such, you know, uh, people could understand what he was saying, like uh, that when he was on that talk show with Paul Weiss. Mm -hmm. And um, so people were listening to him. Um, but I did find it very shocking that he was on the FBI list. Well, okay. Well, you, you brought him up twice now, so I'll, I'll mm. go to that. There's, I want to play this clip because this is really, um, this is really Baldwin at his, at his best. Um, so this is an interview that he was, he was on the, the, the Dick Cavett show and, uh, he does this, he has this little debate with a Yale professor named Paul Weiss. And, uh, let's just hear a bit of that. Finding it himself goes within. To become a writer is a something that you have to struggle with by yourself, in yourself. And all these other things are conditions and problems, and I grant you had more than other people have. I didn't even say that. I said they were different. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory, 
that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn off all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit as a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. What do you think of that? <laughs> Powerful, because again, and I think we see it a lot now in today's discourse where someone tells you that this is my reality and then the person receiving that information becomes defensive. Right. And tells you, you know, what's what. And he was able to flip it in the sense that, you know, this is how things are going for me. Um, and I don't know how we... And he does that a lot. He did that. Uh, uh, he was at Oxford University and there was a debate there and he was able to switch things around. And what I find so fascinating is that sometimes when he's on these talk shows or when he's in this in these environments and people are telling him they're refuting what he's saying, he's very calm about it. You don't even hear any emotion. Mm. And he just kind of gives it back to the person, puts it in the, in the court. And the thing is that, you know, I was a little nervous about doing this podcast. Why? Uh, because it's like, you know, a lot of uh, what James Baldwin was talking about in writing, um, it's the same today. And we see a lot in public discourse where people come forward and say, you know, this is my experience. And and for whatever reason, other, the other person receiving that information is like, no, no, you're just, you know, complaining because you're not very good at your job. Or mm -hmm. you're just saying this because you're trying to cancel somebody. Or you're just saying, um, instead of people just taking it in and listening um, and saying, okay, what is my role in this situation? What is it that I need to do to change what's happening? And it's frustrating, and I don't know if that's ever going to change because part of what he was saying um, when he was saying, when you do these things to me, like when you hang me, I'm looking at your face, but you're not looking at me. You don't see me as a person, as an individual. And I don't know how we move beyond that to see other people, to see them for as being people. And in that clip, Paul Weiss was like, well, I'm a scholar, you're a scholar, you know, we're the same. But are we? Yes, I want, I want to believe that you see me as being the same. But it's also kind of like when people say, I don't see color, but why don't you see color? You know, see my color and because then that means that you see my whole self and then there's nothing wrong with my color. But it's like people become very uncomfortable. And I, Toni Morrison was very good at this and same thing with James Baldwin and Tanahasi Coates, where they send the question back to the person who's asking it. Right. You know, don't put that burden on me to explain it. Ask yourself why it is that you feel that way. Why are you afraid of black people? Why have black people been villainized to be not human why do we use black you know why is there a white when race is a social construct um and 
but I don't know if people really want to have those conversations because even when we talk about race, we always say, let's have these uncomfortable conversations. It's important <laughs> to have these uncomfortable conversations. But why is it uncomfortable? Like, really, why is it uncomfortable? Because I'll tell you why. I find myself, I find myself um, editing myself a lot of the time. We talk about free speech. I don't know if free speech means me. And I always like, I always liken free speech to like, uh, I don't know, cheesecake, whatever your favorite dessert is. Like free, free speech is um, the dessert. I just want the salad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just like for me to be treated equally. Um, right. For my word to be taken as sacred as a white guy's, you know, um, that's all I want. And maybe down the line, you know, when I have all these other things, when I have the main course and I have a glass of wine or whatever, and then maybe I can get to the free speech. And I thought, I think it was so powerful for James Baldwin to be in that time as um, as a queer man, as a black man, and to be able to speak so powerfully um, on those stages, and also while all the while dealing with the murders of his friends, uh, there was a lot at stake back then. It wasn't just him going on. You know, it's not like when you go on Twitter and you you know, and you like you know, uh, send somebody a bad tweet or cancel them online. This was about life and death. And in that clip that you pay uh, you played. How can he write in America when he's just worried about the cops, you know, who will stop him just because he's a black person and possibly kill him? How can his mind be in a state where he can create? Uh, he can create the beautiful work that he created if he's afraid of being shot, you know, the next second. Um, and that is a luxury that people don't understand where we use this language on Twitter, like, oh, this person's being uh, a snowflake. And I say this as, you know, I'm mixed ethnicity. I'm a light-skinned uh, woman. Um, I have blue eyes. And if I wanted to blend in somewhere, I probably could. Um, but when I go out the door, I am very cautious. I am very aware of people who are around me. But imagine someone like a James Baldwin, where, you know, you stand out, your skin's very dark. Uh, you're living during a time where just being a black person um, is breaking the law. And yeah, and for him to just have that power and that conviction and that ability to write the way that he wrote um, during those times, it kind of, for me, it's it's sacred. Um, and I'm really glad that I discovered, I discovered, like, I discovered him. No, I'm really glad that I was able, like, I found his work eventually, even though it took a very long time. Yeah, I, I, I too, kind of, um, I, one thing I thought about with, you know, if he was around during social media, I wonder what he would say, if he would even use it. But made me think, though, like, you know, given that, like, like it was hard for, I think, you know, black people to be heard on television like that, right? Like, you know, they weren't, you know, as, as, uh, seen on on the airwaves as much, and so they weren't able to really push back against a lot of uh, racist the narrative. Depiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They couldn't really push back against the narrative, and now with social media, they can. And um, I think it's you know caused a lot of uh, 
not just black people even like just you know a lot of marginalized groups do this right lgbt folks do it too um and i think that upsets a lot of people because it's like well i used to be able to say this and now it's like well okay i can't say this anymore like what the hell like you know they get so like upset by that and it's like um sorry <laughs> like, you yeah, know what well, i mean and well, you don't have to be james baldwin like you don't have to be an intellectual to like you know uh call out someone you know like you can just call them out when they tweet something or they write something and just say hey i don't like that yeah and i don't know and some people don't even say that because is it worth it and this is where mm. i find like there was a lot of courage in his writing and a lot of courage in just being who he was at, during that time and being on the fbi list i wonder if he knew that he was on the fbi list well, you that's know a good question you know at, now that when we talk about like the accountability and cancel culture and all those things to live um i think people that's something that is explored in the documentary kind of in a way um again it's kind of like the apathy and ignorance um there's a line in the documentary i think it was the apathy and ignorance is a price we pay for segregation people kind of put their heads in the sand like i don't know what's going on and that's not happening um and you know i can use the and word because it's free speech and it's like well why do you want to use it it was used a few times in the documentary and it was very uncomfortable um and i know that's something that happened all the time and i just every time someone says to me why can't i use it i'm like well why do you want to use it did you ever see that clip of delroy lindo uh mm-hmm. talking yes to these oh the good uh the good two white news act yeah, oh no it was actually them. it was actually on on there's a uh there's a uh, interview he he was on, on some like talk show and these two white no guys no no it like, was from the good fight it was um because oh. sorry i'm obsessed with the good fight yeah oh so, i thought it, i thought actually thought it was a real thing no no it was a it was a clip from the good fight oh my gosh that show has so many truth bombs on it oh that's but, amazing so, yeah so on the show he's invited to be a panelist because he's a lawyer and he's trying to maybe run for office and this might increase his star power he goes on this on this talk show and then they're talking about the n-word and he's like, well, just go ahead. Just use it. Just use it. And the guy's like, uh. <laughs> but it was great because he was like, he flipped it again, right? Yeah. If you want to use it, just go use ahead. it. Say it to my face. Yeah. Say, just say it, you know. You have African-American rappers saying inward this and inward that, but a Caucasian can't. So say it. Say what? And like, I, I have never used the N-word. The only time that I've used the N-word was to explain to my son what it meant because somebody said it to him. Oh, jeez. So, you know, I I have always, to just watch those images from that documentary um, and to see, like, we're having the same kind of conversations now. Um, I always said to, you know, I used to work in um, music and it's always used, like, well, people use it in music all the time. And I remember, like, 15, 20 years ago, and I'm totally aging myself, where I uh, I did a, a piece on the N-word. And there used to be this guy called Bubba, Bubba Sparks. He was, yeah, like, from the South. Yeah, the rapper. Yeah. And I, I think he might have... Anyway, for some reason, I was interviewing him about that word. And I said to him, I go, well, I could never use it in front of uh, an elderly black person because they know the sting of that word like there's just no way that it would come out of my mouth and for people to understand the brutality of that word the how people were debased they weren't even seen as human beings and for you to just be using it he's like well other people have reclaimed it all right that's not where i'm coming from 
but I don't know if that's an argument for you to make so that you can use it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, I, I I wouldn't dare use it, and I mean, no, my, never. You know, I mean, I was with my dad once when someone threw it at him. I mean, it's just awful. You know, like you yeah. feel so like deep, deep powered. I don't know. Like you just you don't know what to do, right? Like it's just like, and he handled it well, but it was just kind of like one of those situations where you just feel like terrible. You know what I mean? I mean, in the documentary where, um, again, from that same interview, he's like, you know, I'm a man, um, but people look at me like the N-word. That is not me. I am a man. And it's this fight to not be erased from being a man. Um, And I thought it was interesting when he was talking about uh, Sidney Poitier um, and uh, Harry Belafonte. Oh, you actually went where I wanted to go next. Yeah, please continue. Please continue. Um, You know, like how they're supposed to be uh, just this one specific thing. You know, you can't be all of who you want to be. Why can't he be this thing? You know, it's always like these, um, like, this well, they character. were sex symbols, but they weren't treated as sex symbols. You know what I mean? Of like, course they, not, because <laughs> you know what? What was it? You can even have like um, inter. I hate using race, but it's everywhere. Uh, you, you can marry like a white person and black person couldn't even marry back in those days, right? So yeah, for them to be sex symbols, that would mean you know, like America was burning, right? Um, and, but why couldn't they be sex symbols? They were sex symbols for a lot of other people. Yeah, they were sexy. Uh, they were very sexy still, <laughs> right? I know, they're and, still around, aren't they? Yeah, they're still very sexy. Uh, they're very good-looking men, but they were just kind of like treated as, you know, you're this, you tick off the box, you're the Negro man, um, and that's it. And it takes away the fullness of life, the, the person that you can be, all these other things that you can have. Your imagination is limited to someone else's small um, expectations for you. And it's well, kind of it, like, yeah. you know, well, you're already an actor. What else do you want? <laughs> kind of thing, right? Well, well, I think, yeah, I think, you know, he he mens- makes this point about Poitiers especially because I think he, the way he's used in films like The Defiant Ones or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or In the Heat of the Night, you know, he's usually playing a character who's, uh, he's palatable, right? Like he's he's not threatening. He's, he's forgiving. When Sidney jumps off the train, the white liberal people downtown were much relieved and joyful. But when black people saw him jump off the train, they yelled, Get back on the train, you fool. The black man jumps off the train in order to reassure white people, to make them know that they are not hated. That though they have made human errors, they done nothing for which to be hated. And, you know, it's funny, the movie Green Book, which came out a few years ago and won the Best Picture Oscar, it's sort of like this, it's doing the same thing. Like, it's making this relationship between the white and the black character, you know. It's not solving racism, even though it seems to think that the only the way to do that is to just, you know, yeah, be friends. I think- like, it's just, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a naive uh, belief that, you know, that's how you resolve racism is just the white and the black character become friends at the end. It's just like, come on. I think it also speaks to something that Baldwin um, in the documentary that points out to that America is about like things that are feel good. It's uh, yeah. it's like an illusion. But I also don't blame um, like I don't know if I don't know if Baldwin was blaming them um, because I do, it's kind of like uh, when uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X were kind of like pitted against each other. I think they were both fighting for the same thing. And eventually towards, um, they did come to a point where they were friendly and they wanted the same things. 
in, I guess, uh, on the outside. I think from the very beginning, they were trying to fight for black people. Um, and for Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte, I don't know how much choice of characters they had. You know, a girlfriend of mine is an actor. And before last year, the characters that she would come up for were a prostitute, crack addict, and maybe a single mother. Those are the characters that they would book her for. So I don't know how much things have changed since then, right? And if they didn't play those characters, somebody else would. And um, Sidney Poitier and Harry Balafonte were, uh, they were were part of the civil rights movement. Um, So I wouldn't want to suggest that, you know, they were not in the struggle as well. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't know how I had much to add to that. I think, you know, w- when you mentioned uh, King and X, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, being pitted against each other. And I, I made me think, you know, I, I think towards the end of Malcolm's life, you know, he was kind of coming towards uh, King. And I think he really actually wanted to get more involved with. Uh, yeah. With after other, his, with after he leaders. came back from Mecca. He yeah, after he left yeah. the nation of Islam. Yeah. yeah. And it just made me sad. You know, I mean, I actually watched uh, One Night in Miami recently. And uh, Malcolm X is a character in that, um, and you know he he died the year after this movie is set, and so did Sam Cooke, and um, you know obviously King and Medgar Evers, and you know they were all killed before they were forty, and it's just crazy to think about like what they could have uh, accomplished if they had lived, and you know where the, where society could be might be at if you know if they were allowed to uh, uh, just you know live their lives live. and yeah and, and and work together right i mean it's just it's um and but Baldwin, i think that you know, was the point i think yeah. that was the point right kind of destroy the civil rights movement by taking away their leaders um and you know taking away the there's a lot of talk in the documentary about moral authority and i don't know who wins when these young fathers, you know, these, they had families, they were loved by their wives, their children. And those families weren't able to grow up. Um, and they had to witness their fathers gunned down as if they didn't matter. And I think that did something to um, a lot of Americans. Um, and it's just, you're right, like, they were younger than 40. You know, they could still be alive today and because they were fighting for equality, they were killed. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we have to wrap up our conversation, but, uh, you know, we're talking about an American writer here. Um, I'm always conscious of the fact that we're a Canadian <laughs> show. <laughs> um, but I guess I wonder, you know, like, what do you think Baldwin's resonance is for, for us here? Like, what, I don't know, what, what message does he have because he was writing for an American audience I think and I just wonder if if you think that what he has to say is applicable here Mm, I don't know if if he was writing for an American audience I think he was maybe writing for um, maybe he was writing for black people I don't know if he because I remember watching this um, uh, interview with Toni Morrison and the interviewer was asking Toni Morrison why she doesn't have more white characters in her book and uh, the answer that Toni gave was you know was great she's like I write for black people Um, and I come from a black world so that's what I write about 
And James Baldwin was a person who, you know, I think if he was alive today, he'd be, I guess what you could call like a Renaissance man or uh, maybe someone who's just like uh, worldly. Uh, he loved living in Europe, so definitely writing for a European audience. Um, I think he's one of those, again, it goes back to the fact that we don't know his writing. We weren't taught his writing. Uh, and I don't know if we would ever be taught his writing when in Canada, like in Ontario, we barely learn uh, black history. Um, that's not even taught. So I think it probably resonates in the sense that not very much has changed for people who are not white around the world. Um, and having those like I still feel uncomfortable saying the word white um, I, and I do and I guess because I grew up I, I grew up identifying as African uh, that's where I'm from and then when I came to Canada I became black and then you know I can say black but you, we never really use like white is just the default right um, everything is compared to the default you know, if you go to the, when I was smaller, when I went to the Toys R Us, I didn't see any dolls that looked like me. Um, but now if I do go, there might be a few, but it's still kind of, it's just this, you know, if you're a young Asian person, if you go to the store, you're not going to really see a, a, a doll, an Asian doll, you'll see a white doll. But for some reason, we never really use the word white. And I think some of, the, maybe that's some of the backlash now, people don't want to talk about this just like when he was on that talk show there's a lot of defensiveness so maybe his writing is something for all of us to learn from because clearly <laughs> we're just uh, things are just being repeated and watching that documentary and they were using footage from Ferguson um, to uh, and using footage from the 60s and 70s it's like <laughs> nothing's happened it's still the same thing and then now that we're living through a pandemic and we're seeing um, those similar inequities, the people at the bottom are the same. Um, his writing, I think, is when we talk about witnessing, it's something, I don't know if he meant it to be, but I think it's something for all of us to learn from. Um, and also, one thing that I take away from his writing is I don't need to explain my existence um, I don't have to validate why I um, why I want certain things. I, some, I sometimes feel as if when you have um, an orange, then you're not allowed to ask for an apple when you're um, a black person. And I think for Baldwin, he was like, I want it all. I am a black man. I want it all. I want to be seen in all of my glory and all of my weaknesses the way that I am and I really loved how he was always questioning himself and always um, pushing himself to learn more and to be better um, so I don't know yeah. well I, I don't know if anyone else uh, can tell listening to this but I think we both recommend the doc yes <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm really glad clear. And I'm really, really glad that you read uh, some of him and that we were able to do this because I think the world needs more James Baldwin. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I'm glad uh, I, I was, I finally, uh, uh, I felt, I was going to say, I finally broke down and read it. No, I just, I'm a bad, I'm a very slow reader. 
Uh, it and takes also, me you have a to, lot to read for work. So. Uh, that's true. Yeah, it takes yeah. me a while to crack open a book for pleasure. So I was I was yeah. actually very uh, happy to read it and uh, happy to recommend uh, this movie. I I am not your Negro, and uh, actually, and also, if Bill Street could talk, is it also it's a great movie as well. People should check that out. Yeah, it's awesome. And, yeah. uh, and I, I have King. But, yeah, but I, I think uh, definitely definitely read some Baldwin. Nam, thank you so much. This thank you, fun. Colin. Hopefully, thank I you. didn't talk your ear off. <laughs> you never talk my ear off. What are you talking about? <laughs> Thanks, Colin. It was fun. And that's the podcast. You can watch I Am Not Your Negro on our website at tvo.org and on our YouTube channel, TVO Docs. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about us. Thanks to our guest, Nam Kiwanuka, producer and editor, Matthew Amara. Senior producer Katie O'Connor, our production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.